With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, December 13th. As you know on the Mini Break, this is one of those rare weeks where the ATP and WTA professional tours have a week off. Also on the college front, a lot of these kids studying for their exams right now, getting ready to go home for holiday break. So no individual action in the college tennis world. That's all been wrapped up for 2019. All we have to do here at Cracked Rackets, look ahead to 2020. And that's what we're excited to be doing on the mini break moving forward. As you heard when we did our podcast, recapping and looking forward to 2020 Canadian tennis with Ben Lewis. As you heard on Wednesday in the mini break with Jamie McDonald and Matt Stokowiak previewing Matteo Berrettini. That's what we're going to be doing over these next couple of weeks, looking at the players that in our minds, and it's completely subjective and we are open to uh, any recommendations, but the players that we think could be very consequential to the outcomes, the storylines that come out of the 2020 season. And so, you know, with that in mind, before we get into today's preview, I want to bring in our guest. You will recognize him from a lot of the lots of work he got this week on the mini break. I think it's one of those rare weeks where he may be on more episodes than I am. You know him as your favorite writers from our website, CrackRackets.com, where his series, College Contenders, has been featured uh, these past six weeks. We've also done a mini break, uh, breaking down his article and the teams he's discussed. Of course, I affectionately know him as Matt the Cracks to Koyak. Matty, welcome back to the mini break. What's going on, man? You know, I'm excited to be back on here with you. This is the... uh the triple dipper this week on the mini break for me. So <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anyone refer to it as the triple dipper. I like that. I had to think of something quick there, you know, so that was just uh, <laughs> top of the head, the old triple dipper on the mini break. So it's it's going to be fun, man. No, I'll say this three times in one week. Clearly, you are on top of your game, and it's really fun. So rarely, Matt, do we get a chance to catch our breath as tennis fans kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Obviously, I'll get the plugs out of the way now. We are looking at the past 10 years of tennis on our Great Shot podcast, Best of the Decade series, but in particular for this preview, and uh, actually, I guess before we get it kicked off, West off, give me a off-season preview sound effect, please. Going to be interesting to hear what he goes with there, Matt, but... You know, part of this exercise in choosing uh, these players are the players who uh, are most interesting to us. And for a lot of different reasons, that'll come from players being, you know, are they young and unproven? And so that's obviously always intriguing to see how a player is going to develop over an off offseason. Uh, did this player have a particularly significant result in 2019 that may uh, foreshadow some upcoming success or upcoming runs in that person's uh, future seasons, you know, in particular immediately in 2020? Matt, before I name today's person, what what do you think about as we, you know, kind of list through these names to give our listeners some perspective? Yeah, so, you know, when we're talking about these uh, these players coming up, I mean, it could be anybody that, you know, had a really good year last year, you know, an up-and-comer that's made steady progress, you know, that we think is continuously 
um, on the rise and somebody to look out for next year. Um, so, you know, that's some of the criteria that we're going to be looking at with these guys. Just overall, uh, players that we're excited about, you know, for a multitude of different reasons. Yeah. And obviously we are going to be biased towards the younger players because what is there to learn about? As interesting as Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic are down their respective home, uh, home track of their careers, you know, down the ending path, as interesting as that's going to be moving forward. There are so many other players who it feels like are on the cusp of either breaking through or just becoming household names, people you see in round of 16s, quarterfinals, semifinals of the Grand Slams, of the Masters 1000s event. And that's why the guy we are talking about today, in my opinion, is one of the most interesting players looking ahead to 2020. That, of course, is Hubert Hercatch, who I'm not going to butcher his name all podcast long. I'm going to affectionately refer to him as Hubie. And Hubie Hercatch was one of the you don't want to say the – look, if you don't win a Grand Slam, you don't win a Masters 1000 event, how consequential were you on a season? I don't know. But he was certainly a guy that I feel like all ATP fans, all people who follow the game – took notice of this year, and it starts with the fact that he begins the season ranked uh, right around number 100. He ends the year, or begins the year at number 88, and he's ending the season at number 37. Just by simple, you know, maybe by rankings jump, it's not the biggest number. There are people who go from unranked to number 400, and I suppose that's a little bigger. But in terms of significance, this is a guy who made one of the biggest leaps forward during the 2019 season on the ATP Tour. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, you mentioned 87, 88 in the world to start the year, all the way up to 37 now. That's steady improvement. I mean, that's a big jump when we're talking about the top players in the world. Um, So he obviously had a a good year overall. It was up and down. um, You know, but if we look back even a year further, Gruskin, I mean, this time two years ago, he was like 238 in the world, I think. So the, pro- uh, the progress that he's made over the last couple of seasons to go from like, you know, just inside the top 250 to inside the top 100 and now from, you know, 88 to 37, this is a guy that's on the rise. And, you know, both of us obviously took note um, of that throughout last season. And I think we both had a lot of fun watching him. As I'm sure Jamie mentioned on the Wednesday podcast, we have a sec structure of questions we want to answer during these preview podcasts, gives you listeners some uh, familiarity, what to expect as we go day by day. And I'm glad you bring that point up because question number one we want to start with, why is Hubie Hercatch an interesting player heading into 2020? And it's exactly uh, that progression you mentioned. I want to go back even further. And for our listeners who don't know about Hubie Hercatch, again, he ends the year ranked number 33 in the rankings. Or sorry, number 37, excuse me, but reached a career high of 33 earlier in the year. This is a guy born February 1997. So that makes this his age 22 season. And by a time of play player turns 22 and it's not even projecting grand slam championships but if you want to say you want to see if that player has top 10 potential top 20 potential staying power by 22 you'll start to really learn some things about them and what I love for Hubie Hercatch as you mentioned Matt 
it's a steady progression. You go all the way back to the start of 2015. He's outside the top 1,000. One year later, 2016, he finds himself inside the top 700 at 620. Another year later, start of 2017, he makes another jump, you know, top 400, 384. Now you're going from futures levels events to challenger level events. During the 2017 season, as you mentioned, he cuts that in half. He ends 2017 as the number 238 player in the world. And then, as you've mentioned, these past two years, right outside the top, or right inside the top 100, number 88. And now he's inside the top 40. It's check mark, check mark, check mark, check mark. I do well at futures, I move on. I start playing challengers, I'm making quarterfinals. I go from quarterfinals to winning maybe one challenger. Now I've won three challengers, now I'm in 250 events, and it culminates this year. He gets his first ATP Tour title in Winston-Salem. He keeps ascending the rankings. Yeah, he does, and I expect him to continue to do so. Um, you know, everybody progresses a little bit differently, right? At a different pace. And you have to learn, you know, when you play at the futures level, you have to learn how to win there. And then you move on to the challengers and you have to learn how to win at that level. Same thing on the ATP tour. And I think Hubie's just done a good job of adjusting to these different levels. And now he knows, I mean, he's played the top guys. He knows what it's going to take you know, to stay inside that top 20 in the world. You know, he's not there yet, but I, you know, I expect him to be there, um, you know, relatively soon. He's only 22. This guy's got a ton of upside. Well, you have to love for him. He starts his 2019 season, uh, and this can get into some of the positives, I suppose. Our second question, he starts his 2019 season at the challenger level, loses his very first match of the year to Ivashka in three sets, first round of a challenger. And then from then, it's a steady stream upwards. He wins the next week in Canberra uh, to get the challenger title, ends up losing a four-set battle to Ivo Karlovich, first round of the Australian Open, but those were all tiebreaker sets. And then slowly but surely, Again, he he finds himself at the ATP level. He goes to Dubai. He wins over Courtney Mutet first round, knocks off Kei Nishikori in a three-set battle before losing in the quarterfinals three sets to Tsitsipas. And he just continued, you know, it felt like after that Dubai point, rankings-wise, obviously, he took a big jump to where he was in the 60s, 50 range, and he could get into all of these events. But from there, it was a steady stream of, you know, second, third-round appearances, getting a win each week, not losing first-round matches, and that's a jump. That's how you make your breakthrough. Yeah, and, and there's a couple of moments, you know, if we're going to talk about positives and things that we really liked out of his year, for me, it really started in Indian Wells. So you mentioned Dubai and some of those earlier tournaments. I think... The moment that I realized, okay, Hubie's for real. Like, he's he's going to announce himself, and, and tennis fans are going to know who he is, was at Indian Wells, man. I mean, we're talking Masters 1000 event, huge tournament, and he takes out guys like Pui, Nishikori, and Denis Shapovalov on his way to the quarterfinals. He did lose to Federer there, uh, but that was just a tournament for him. He hadn't progressed, you know, quite that far throughout his career. And then, you know, he goes to Miami right after that and he beats Berrettini and Dominic team, you know, and then he ends up losing to FAA in a tight match. Uh, but that stretch there on the hard courts at two big events, really for me, I was like, okay, you know, this guy can play on the big stage. I like what he's doing. And I think a lot of fans started to realize, yeah, this guy's going to be around for a while right there. 
And then, of course, you know, later on in the year, you mentioned it before, but his first title in Winston-Salem, man, um, you know, that's a tournament that obviously I always talk about. I was there. I saw Hubie at Winston. Um, he, he played outstanding tennis, and I think it's a great place for him to get his first title. I'm telling you, man, people that win the Winston-Salem Open typically go on and, and really do some good things. Um, you know, you look at a guy like Medvedev, who won it a few years ago and what he's done. So... Um, those are really the two moments, kind of that, that Indian Wells, Miami stretch. And then later on in the year at Winston Salem, where I was like, okay, these are some real bright spots for this guy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I, I want to throw in a couple of more bright spots as well, but you got to his best win. So just to get through that real quick, you mentioned Nishikori. He beat him twice in a row in that back-to-back stretch and that culminating with that Indian Wells wins. He beat Shapovalov twice in the season. You mentioned that win is Indian Wells. He also beat him at Winston-Salem. He beat Pui twice, Team Berrettini, Dimenauer, Fritz, Tsitsipas, Tiafo, Per Monfils. And what you like about that for Hubie Hercatch, who's still 22 years old but turns 23 uh, in a couple of months. I mean, those are his contemporaries, and he's beating them consistently throughout the year. Uh, And it wasn't just hardcore, right, in terms of another breakthrough result from him on the clay. He goes to Madrid, has to play qualifying there, but he knocks out two players, beats Dimenauer first round, although Dimenauer was coming off of injury, but still beats Luka Pui in straight sets, loses a tight three-set match in the round of 16 to Alex Virov. And then for him to go to Wimbledon and make the third round there, really his first first uh, full grass season. He also made quarterfinals at Eastbourne, but at that Wimbledon, he loses in a really good four-set set match, I think, in my opinion, to Novak Djokovic. It's the steady progression. It's just that I think, and we'll get into the negatives, and this will lead into it, but one of the biggest positives is match in, match out, the basic level of Hubie Hercatch is so high. You just, he's not going to beat himself with unforced errors. He's not going to go into a double fault fit. He's not going to try and force things. He's just extremely steady, extremely solid. And you forget the fact, in, in terms of positive, this is a guy who's grown into his six foot five frame, who moves really well across three surfaces despite being tall and lanky. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you look at his frame, he's 6'5". You know, his movement compared to a guy like Matteo Berrettini, who's also 6'5", you know, Hercotch is a notch above, man. I mean, there's no question about it. So for a guy his size, I think he moves well. I think, you know, I don't know if I'd consider it a, a strength of his game. He's not moving like Daniil Medvedev or anything like that, but um, he does it pretty well to where it's not a weakness. And, and at his size, uh, that's important, you know, to compete at this level. So I agree with you. You look at his serving stats for the year. He made 65% of his first serves in ATP matches, won 73% of those for, uh, points. That's pretty good. I mean, it speaks to the fact he is six foot five. His serve is going to have to be a weapon. And just when you're that size and the way the modern game is going, it's just something you need to be able to win free points for him. 356 aces against 141 double faults. Again, that, you know, three to one ish ratio, pretty solid. Um, but I do think, and I suppose this is how we'll get into the negatives. Um, well, it, it'll be both negative and positive because 
it's not really a negative. I think at a basic level, Hubie Hercatch does everything pretty well, if not, you know, well on the tennis court. He moves well. Solid off of both the forehand and the backhand wing. The first serve can be a weapon, as I mentioned. The second serve sits a little bit, but he doesn't have fits with double faults. He still wins 52% of his second serve points. He's a guy who's going to make a lot of returns. He's a guy who's going to move forward when the opportunity presents itself without hesitation. And yet, I guess the biggest negative, and it's still early, and again, he's growing into his body, But do you see a definitive weapon for him yet? I don't see a way that he is going to win outside of maybe that serve becoming even better. Uh, Just a lot of free points. Everything he plays is physical, and that's his strength. He wants it to be ugly, but it can look ugly at times. Yeah, it can, and it's going to be tough. You know, if we're talking about cracking the top 20, top 15, even top 10, which I'm sure is his ultimate goal to get inside that top 10, it's going to be tough for a guy like Hubie to play that style and be successful week in and week out. I think he's got to get more aggressive. Like you mentioned, what are his weapons? I mean, you can't look at his forehand, you know, like a Berrettini where you can say, oh my God, I mean, this guy can absolutely blast his forehand. You know, Hubie, I think this offseason, he really needs to kind of go back and just say, okay, I've got to be aggressive on my serve and really push the envelope a little bit. I mean, be aggressive off the ground because we know he's solid, We know he's consistent, but I just think if he's going to make that next jump, uh, you know, that's something that he's really, he's going to have to look at and that must improve. You look at the, you know, two different records for Hubie, 25 and 24 on the ATP tour, but 39 and 28 overall on this season. You know, again, there were some first round losses sprinkled in, but a very steady, uh, you know, solid progression upwards, as we've mentioned for him. But you talk about that lack of a weapon. I just want to compare him to two guys down the home stretch who really stood out in the Sin Man, Yannick Sinner, and of course, Denis Shapovalov. And I think that the thing that's, that I think, excuse me, the thing that's a little bit of a tongue twister uh, that stood out from both of those players down the home stretch is just how fearless they were. Didn't matter the moment, didn't matter the point. If they saw a ball they liked, they both went for their shots. And now they both possess firepower that's, you know, 99.9% of tennis players don't have. They're able, when they want to snap on a ball and put the ball away, you know, they're either missing or the point is over and they hit a winner. I don't know if Hubie has that sort of natural quick twitch fiber, you know, that sort of natural firepower. But he certainly, just on approach shots or just at will in a point, just go big down the line and try it. I think he does it a little bit with his backhand down the ground, but he never you never just see him unload like a Del Potro on a forehand. And I don't know if he's capable of, again, because big backswing certainly, but you would just like to see him try. Yeah, I think he's capable. I think he can work on that. I really do. I mean, if he makes a conscious effort, you know, to to keep telling himself, okay, I've got to stay aggressive here. If I get a forehand, I'm tagging it. I'm going to do that. I I think he's got the ability... Sorry to cut off. Sorry to no. I want I want to push back because to make this even more specific, he has the ability. I agree with you. Do you think he? Ha- I mean, this is a loaded question. Has the natural firepower of a Shapovalov or a Sinner, or do you just think the way points open up for him that he has those opportunities presented to him plenty of times during a point? Yeah, I don't think it's natural. I mean, to to answer your first question, I don't think it's natural the way that it is for like a Denis Shapovalov, but. Sure. I don't, I don't care. I think he can still improve it regardless if it's natural or not because he's got the, he's got the physical tools. 
Um, and, and like you mentioned, there will be opportunities that present themselves in matches where if he just makes a conscious effort, you know, if he's being coached to do that, I think he can make that adjustment. It may be a work in progress. He may make a few more errors initially. Um, but if he wants to break into that top 20, top 10 range, he's going to have to. Ju- I mean, there's no there's no question. He's going to have to do it. This may resonate with some of our college tennis fan listeners, but he reminds me of just a more talented Yana Konofman. Like, just the ease with which they both move around the court, the ease with which they both move forward. The game looks very easy, very natural to him. He moves in the sort of way Bernard Tomic moved in his prime in that he reads the game so well. He knows where his opponent wants to hit, what patterns they want to see, and he's very good at disrupting patterns. In particular, going backhand down the line, hoping you go forehand down the line, then he can open up either a backhand cross-court for himself, or you leave a uh, forehand cross-court short and he can approach behind that forehand. He also is six foot five. When you have that wingspan, it's easy to come forward. So in terms of, you know, because the question of what are the negatives, I suppose it's that I agree with you. I think he enjoys making points lengthy. I think he thinks they that goes to his advantage and he's not wrong. But as you proceed higher and higher up the rankings, you just have to play some short points. You can't expect to play four hours with Novak Djokovic as he learned in Wimbledon because Djokovic and you know the Federers and even the Dominic teams, Shapovalov's, maybe not Shapovalov's, but Berrettini, Tsitsipas's of the world, they're too good to do that three out of five sets. So I agree. Just to see him take risks, I would say moving into question number four, that's the thing I want to see him do more moving forward. Keep the balance, the steadiness of that comes with his game, but don't be afraid to take a few more risks because a more apt approach shot, you add that to his various skills, and now you're really looking at a top 15, top 10 player. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. There's no question about it. One point that I do want to mention about, you know, I don't want to say that it's a negative, but but something, you know, as I was reflecting on his year, something that just has to change obviously is his performance at majors man and and look we're always going to talk about the slams right I mean the greats are always measured by what they do at the grand slams and Hubie had three first round losses he won two matches at slams and they both came at Wimbledon um that's not going to cut it I mean I know that he did well at a lot of the Masters thousands that we talked about Indian Wells uh, Miami Madrid but you know Dr. Evo, first round of the Australian. Yes, there were four tiebreakers there, but that's a match. You know, Evo's 40 years old, you know, for God's sake. I mean, Hubie, I, that's a match I want to see him win in the first so, round of a slam. I'm going to push back on this point. It was his first Australian Open, and I agree, you want to see him win that match. But you look at the other two first round losses. French Open, he loses first round to Djokovic. Yep, tough uh, draw. And t- yeah, and t- four, two, and two. Yeah, that's just a tough draw. I agree with you, particularly because he had played well on the clay this year. But then at the U.S. Open, he loses a five-set match to Jeremy Chardy. And keep in mind, this, this was his first year playing all four Grand Slams in a calendar year. He loses to Chardy after being up two sets to one, uh, three, six, six, three, six, seven, six, one, six, four. I'm going to write that off as just, you know, lack of five-set slam match experience and say that I think part of the reason I'm so excited for him is I think this is a guy who, because of the way he plays physically, the three out of five-set format is going to benefit him over his career. Maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm if I'm completely in agreement with you on that, man. I just, I'm going to keep that in mind. Hey, those results at the majors, going into next year, 
I'm going to absolutely keep that in mind when I'm watching him at the slams, um, you know, because that's, it's not going to cut it. And, you know, whether it's his first year playing or not, okay, you know, we'll give him a pass this year. That's fine. If that's what you want to do, Gruskin. Um, but next year, you know, he, we better not see three first round losses, right? I mean, cause that, that's not going to be good. And if things break right, I think the first tournament he's scheduled to play in 2020 is Australia. But this is a guy who later in the year could be looking at himself as a seed at these majors. And that's obviously beneficial towards making deep runs. I thought he was fairly consistent at the at the uh, Masters level. Only two first-round losses as well as a qualifying loss there. But at one, two, three, four, five of the events, he was able to win at least one match, if not come through qualifying. And again, this is to gets to why he is so interesting. Because you're absolutely right. Right. If we're treated to another year of first or even second round losses, you know, similar first, second round losses at the Masters, well, then we know maybe Hubie Hercatch, that lack of a weapon, that's going to hurt his upside. But this is a guy who, given how young and talented he is, and the results do speak for themselves. Again, this is his first full year on the ATP Tour. He works himself up into the top 40, a career high of number 33, as I mentioned, in his ending that year in the top 40. Uh, this is why you look at the best and worst case scenarios for him, and this is our final question. I certainly think a best case scenario for him would be at either an Australian Open or a U.S. Open where we've seen him so good on the hard courts, or even at a Wimbledon where his length and his various skills, uh, various skills and that skill set in general help him on that surface. If we saw him make a second week, it would not surprise me at all. Oh, no question. I... I... Not, not not surprising in the least. I completely agree with you. I mean, I think if things would break right, he could maybe potentially even make a quarterfinal, possibly. Um, but, you know, no guarantee there. It's possible, though. I mean, I think best case scenario, you know, he continues to ascend, which I think his arrow is pointing up. I really do. Um, yeah, we, we could potentially see that. It, it is possible. So I'm going to list some names right now. Here are the top players in the ATP rankings under the age of 23. You tell me if you think they belong above or below or, you know, right, you know, right where they are compared to her catch. Tsitsipas, Zverev, number one and two at six and seven. Obviously, they're in their own category, right? Yep, yep. Shapovalov, Dimenauer, 15, 18, FAA, 21. They're probably their own category as well, right? Yep, I like them there. Yeah, I do. N- Next, you have Andre Rublev, who finished the year sixth in the under-23 rankings at number 23. Okay, yeah. Feels right. Quarterfinalist at the U.S. Open. I right. mean, the guy was money down the home stretch. Yeah. Okay, now it gets interesting. Seven, eight, nine. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to guess the order. I'll tell you the players. It's Fritz, Opelka, and Hercatch. Actually, I'll tell you seven, eight, nine, ten. although you might know who 10 is now. Fritz, Opelka, Hercatch, Tiafo. Give me the order. The order on that is going to be Opelka, Hercatch, Fritz, Tiafo. So it actually, it's Fritz at 32, Opelka 36, Hercatch 37, Tiafo 47. And honestly, that feels like the cohort he belongs with, right? Fritz got an ATP title this year. Opelka got a title this year. Tiafo, you know, didn't get a title, but he got the Delray Beach one last year, but he made an Australian Open quarterfinal, that Miami quarterfinal as well. That's the group her catch belongs with, and he didn't have the junior credentials maybe as those other three who, you know, were either top three juniors in the world or junior slam champions, but he has worked himself on the professional circuit in that conversation, and again, getting to why, because there's a 
best case scenario where it's not Fritz, it's not Opelka, it's not Tiafo, maybe it's not even Rublev, but it's her catch who pops in 2020. And that's the best case scenario for me. Yeah, no doubt. He belongs in that category. There's no question about it. I think all those guys, not just Hubie, but I mean the Fritzes, the Opelkas, they have the opportunity to rise even further, you know, into that category, you know, with the Rublevs and the FAAs and, you know, that group as well. I think that group that's maybe just a little bit behind can can rise up and, and reach that other group. Now, you know, if we're talking the Zverev Sitsipas level, that may be a stretch. You know, I'm not ready to go that far um, you know, in one season next year in 2020. But as far as those other guys, yeah, I, I, I do. Sure. I mean, you talk about some of the guys below him. It's not fair. You know, Miomir Kesmanovic is two full years, two and a half full years younger than Hubie. I think he certainly belongs in that conversation. Obviously, the Sin Man at age 18 belongs in that conversation. And certainly, you do have to factor in that he's one of the older under 23 players. But, you know, given the rising physicality of tennis, given that it seems players get better into their late 20s now as opposed to how it was earlier. It's okay that he came on, you know, a year or two later than the average player because his upside has shown. And ultimately, you have to show that sort of upside to succeed. Now, we talked about we'd like to see him move forward and that sort of passivity. I I think, again, he's really good, but he doesn't win a ton of free points. For you, uh, he did it at the challenger level, but now you know for him, there are going to be expectations. He's going to get into every tournament he wants to enter, and he's not going to have those qualifying matches to work his way into being comfortable on the surfaces. Uh, the other half of the question is worst case scenario. Do you see a worst case scenario, a place where you think the bottom falls out for her catch? Because to be honest, I really don't. I just feel like his baseline level of tennis. This is a guy who belongs in the ATP top fifty. Yeah, no question. And that's that's kind of what I was going to say was if if he doesn't really, you know, improve anything, if he just continues to play his game, you know, steady Eddie, passive, um, you know, grinding it out style tennis. I mean, the worst case scenario would be he hovers around that number 50 mark. I mean, I still think he could be a top, you know, 50 player around that 50 mark, um, you know, playing the way that he does now. I do, because he's that skilled, he's young enough, um, he moves pretty well, he does everything pretty well, um, you know, but if he wants to make that jump that we talked about, he, he's got to make those improvements, so I think worst case scenario, you know, his serve kind of stays where it is, um, you know, he doesn't look to get aggressive, and, you know, he has some of those first round losses in big events, like slams and masters thousands, Um, and he doesn't gain the points that he needs to, you know, I could see him, you know, at 50, you know, but I I don't know how much worse than that it would get unless he gets injured or, you know, something really goes wrong. But if he stays at the level that he's, he's been playing at, I I think 50 would be a fair mark to say he's probably not going to drop too far below that. Yeah, it's a small sample size, but you look at his record again across the three surfaces this year. It really is pretty impressive stuff. He went uh, a total of uh, 25 and 17 on the hard courts, which I think we can agree is probably his most steady surface. It always is when you're that big. Uh, But then on clay, again, small, but 10 and 8, grass, 4 and 3. His game just feels very adaptable to all three surfaces. There's never a portion of the year where you think, all right, this is where he's going to drop off. This is just, you know, this is not the surface for him. Like we've gotten, you know, so far with some of the other players. Um... 
Yeah, I I just think this is one of the guys in the next gen crew, and I say next gen because he's born after me. Uh, with just one of the highest floors, like uh, the the ceiling from here on in, I could see him being in the top fifty for the next ten years. Right. Yeah, he looks like he could be one of those guys for sure. You know, I'm trying to think of a name like somebody that's hovering around. Know. Like 50. I've been doing this all day. I'm like, come on, who am I thinking of? Who is yeah. this guy similar to? There's got to be somebody that's just hovered around like number 50 in the world for like 10 straight years. There definitely is. I just can't think of it at the moment. Um, you know, but but he could, you know, that floor that we're talking about. I mean, he could be that guy. He could if he doesn't really make, you know, the improvements like we've talked about. But I, I think he can, though. It's not Philip Kohlschreiber no. because the tennis styles are polar opposite, but the way right. they've both lingered uh, is very familiar. It's uh, – I know I'm like – I'm trying to think because someone says – you know, someone – I don't remember who it was, but I remember saying, oh, this is just the – it's a taller, less talented Murray. And I'm like, that's not fair. You can't just say that. Yeah. I would say it's a taller Jill Simone. I think that's pretty fair. A guy who's really good at everything, and this is why I think his upside may be a little bit higher because he is that 6'5 frame to work with, and when you can serve at 6'5, it's just easier. But I would say a slightly taller, the modern Jill Simone in that he's 6'5 and he's really good, or just really solid at everything. Yeah, and he's got a good mentality as well. I like his attitude. I mean, he's a cool customer, man. Very steady. Yeah, he's steady. He doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low. I like that demeanor, and I think that does help him on the court as well. If he can continue to do that, you know, and not show any frustration, um, I still believe, you know, we're talking about, you know, worst-case scenario for him. In my mind, I still believe that he has, you know, a good bit of upside and his arrow is pointing up. I'm looking forward to him. I I think he can take a jump. I do. Absolutely. I'm glad you said arrow, though, because the last thing I want to do before we wrap up gets into our arrow bar, obviously our newest sponsor. But before we do that, any final thoughts on Hubie Hurtcatch? I guess before we wrap that conversation, let's play. We haven't done it in a while. A little game of Alex uh, possible or Alex, you're effing crazy for Hubie Hurtcatch in terms of scenarios for 2020. You, you mentioned it. I'm going to go along with it. Him making a Grand Slam quarterfinal, is that in the realms of possibility? I, th- I think it is in the realm of possibility if things break the right way. I mean, if he could, you know, potentially get seeded at one of the majors and, you know, the draw breaks for him the right way where, you know, maybe there's an upset and he doesn't have to play, you know, one of the top three or four seeds, then, then yeah. I mean, I think I could see it happen. I really, I could, I could. I, could you see him winning a Masters? I can't go that far. I, I don't think so. You know, I, oh man. If no. Djokovic wouldn't have won in Paris, he would be the 2028 favorite to win the Paris Masters title. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I'm not, my confidence with him is, is not there yet to win a Masters. I, I'm not going to say, I, I'm going to say no on that okay. one. Ends the year top 20? That, I will say, is possible if, if he makes the jump again. You know, we've talked about the jumps that he's made in, in rankings over the last couple of years. If he, if he makes the improvements, top 20 would be possible. Yeah. <laughs> he goes on a run where he flirts with the top 10 at some point this season. Not saying he's going to end the year inside of it, but just flirts with it. Mm, I'm not ready to go there yet. I I'm not agree. ready to go there yet. I just, I think maybe... 2021 let's see let's see what this year brings 2020 I think if he if he cracks that top 20 which we just said was possible 
then this time next year we can talk about him, you know, maybe cracking that top 10. I'm not going to go that far this year. Okay, last thing. Uh, he will be sle- uh, He will be seated. He will be seated at both Wimbledon and the uh, U.S. Open. <sighs> That's possible. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say it's probable, but uh, it's definitely possible. Yeah, because that gives him the, the whole first half of the year. You know, Australia, you know, Indian Wells, Miami. There's going to be a bunch of big tournaments that he can gain points at. Um, you know, he's at 37 now. So really, he would just have to move up, what, into the top 32, top 30 range to get that seed. Yeah, no, that's definitely possible. Well, it's twofold because A, he has a challenger title to defend, but B, he's got a ton of challenger events that will now be upgraded to HP 250-500 Masters level events. So that's a good point. And then he's got those points to defend at Indian Wells as well. So I'm sure he'll want to, you know, get himself a nice little buffer in case, you know, the draw doesn't break well for him there. But yeah, I think we can both agree the bar on... uh, uh, Hubie Hurcatch is pointing up. The arrow is up. And speaking of arrow and bar, the last thing I want to bring up that was a not so subtle way of talking about our newest sponsor here at Crack Rackets, Arrow Bar, the first tennis specific energy bar. Of course, they come in delicious honey, cinnamon, oat, as well as chocolate chip, uh, more potassium than a banana. Certainly delicious. You know, Matt and I were going to play the other day, and he said, Alex, I don't think it's fair. I want to drug test you because I'm pretty sure there's arrow bar in your system, and it, there's certainly no no way. You know, it's, you're just going to come up more clean. You're obviously in a better place blood test-wise than I will be because you've got good stuff going through your system. And I was like, Matt, you're right. It wouldn't be fair for us to play a set right now. I would absolutely smoke you because I have that advantage of Aerobar coming our way. And for our listeners who want to try Aerobar for themselves, uh, we ha- they've been kind enough to give us a promo code CRACKED34. Our listeners, that's C-R-A-C-K-E-D-3-0. Use that promo code, get 30% off of your first order. I'm telling you, Matt, tell them, I'm, you, you, true or false, you ducked me because you know I have that arrow bar advantage. It's true, man. It's true. <laughs> it's been true for years. He keeps ducking me. I, you know, he's like, no, let me bring Nick and you can play Nick. And I'm like, no, Nick's <laughs> going to smoke me. I'm like, who, who's that going to be fun for? Yeah, uh, so, you know, we are looking forward. Oh, I, I should also mention, of course, the big thing. Sorry, I got so distracted by the thought of just getting crushed by Nick. But uh, one thing that may help me along that way, Aerobar, kind enough to give us at Crack Rackets a signed John Isner racket to give away to you, the listeners, to sign yourself up for that contest. Leave a review on this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Uh, for each review you leave, your name will be entered one time into the raffle, and we will be announcing that winner, I believe, in a couple of days. So go get those posts up there quickly you're already there leave a review on all three podcasts you might as well um got to give a shout out as always to the super producers as well max flickner and daniel westoff are super uh, producers who have a of a job to do and as you can see i'm losing the thread here so they always make me sound a little bit better than i do but with that in mind manny any final thoughts on hubie I don't think so, man. Hubie's, I know he's your boy. I know you like him a lot, and I, I, I do too. I do too. I think uh, he's definitely a player to watch in 2020. I'm going to be keeping a close eye on him, no doubt. Nice. Nothing surprised me less than when I saw you and Jamie did Berrettini. I was like, yep, that's right up the alley. <laughs> now that's my boy. That's my boy. <laughs> yeah, I feel like all of those questions I asked you when I've been like, possible or you're crazy, you're like, Berrettini's not only going to make a quarterfinal, he's going to win a slam. <laughs> hey man, uh, you know what? That was that was for me to, me and Jamie to discuss. 
Yeah, that's true. Listeners, again, go check that out because those have aged well. And, of course, if you missed any of our content, be sure to go check out our website, CrackedRackets.com, for the immediate, more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's at Cracked Rackets. But one last time, for my lovely co-host, Matt the Cracks, the Koyak, for our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westhoff, and from our entire teams at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Matty, what do we tell our listeners? That's a break. And we will see you all next week. Enjoy your weekend, everyone. <laughs>